Our passage this morning picks up right where we left off last week in the middle of Jesus' fourth main sermon in Matthew's gospel, this sermon that is often called the community of discourse, uh, the community discourse, because it's aimed towards the communal life of the disciple. After hearing Jesus explain to these disciples that reconciliation is the goal, that forgiveness is the way that we operate with one another, that, that those that go astray are worth pursuing, Peter asks an important question to kick off this next part. Peter says, when our brother or sister sins against us, how many times must we forgive? Peter says, okay, we know how to forgive. We know that we even need to forgive those that injure us, but really, how often do we need to do it? How many times is enough? And Peter's answer to his own question can be read a couple of different ways. Is seven times enough, says Peter? Maybe Peter's trying to set a boundary on this hypothetical offender. Boundaries we know are important. Boundaries can be healthy. And if somebody continues to abuse the grace that they've been offered, boundaries may need to be set. Or maybe Peter thinks that he's giving a good, holy, righteous answer. We all know that in the Bible, this number seven is a holy number. It's a number that represents wholeness and completion. So maybe Peter is saying, if we forgive seven times, have we completed the task that God has given us? Is seven times forgiveness what we're supposed to do? Whatever Peter's intent with his own answer to his question, Jesus' answer shows us that it is inadequate. Not seven times, says Jesus, but 77 times. 77 times. Now, when I first read this passage, my mind started to do some rather funny things. I thought to myself, maybe I should start keeping a tally of every single time that my wife offends me, I could start writing it down, count them up, and the first 77 are all free, but by the time she gets to number 78, whatever it is that I owe her is coming to her. I quickly realized the absurdity of this plan because she would never even get to two or three. So I started counting my six-year-old sins. Now, this is kind of an absurd little anecdote, but I hope that it helps us to understand something about this passage. In this passage, we're not just dealing with what the passage says. We're not just dealing with the actual numbers. This isn't a passage that says, forgive 77 times and on 78, you can seek retribution. No. This passage instead is dealing with something that the biblical scholars call hyperbolic absurdity. And I love this phrase, hyperbolic absurdity. These words mean uh, they're a tool. They're a tool that writers use to help us understand the extreme nature of something. The writer, in this case, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew uses big numbers and strange stories to help us understand that there is more going on than what we first expect. As an example that relates directly to this passage, when was the last time that you read the story of Lamech? Anybody? No? Way back in Genesis 4. It is a short story. 
But way back in Genesis 4, after the story of the first brother sinning against his brother, which seems relevant to our passage today, the story of when Cain killed Abel, Abel doesn't really get an opportunity to forgive his brother. But God does have the opportunity. Naturally, the punishment for murder should be death. But God shows Cain grace in sending him into exile instead. And as Cain goes out into exile, as he leaves his home, God even gives him some protection. God says that if anyone murders Cain, if anyone harms Cain, that Cain will be avenged sevenfold. And a few generations later, Cain's great-great-great-grandson, a man named Lamech, holds on to Cain's legacy. Lamech brags to his wives. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech truly is avenged 77-fold. Lamech has taken for himself the right to revenge, the right to seek retribution. And he does so at a much higher cost than the offense that he receives. Lamech returns murder for just a bruise. And Cain 7 becomes Lamech 77. And the author of Genesis is using this, these big numbers, this hyperbolic absurdity to help us understand what is happening in the world as the generations pass. One murder multiplies. Cain kills his brother. And then Lamech has unbridled rage. The writer of Genesis is saying that sin and revenge are growing out of control and that unrestrained violence dominates the world that God had made for goodness. But Jesus, in this passage, calls us to reverse this pattern. Jesus calls this community to reverse this pattern of violence through the act of forgiveness. Reconciliation, communal restoration, the very act of salvation, the project of salvation in this world is done through an act of forgiveness. It's not through retribution. It's not through judgment. It's through forgiveness. And so Cain 7 becomes Lamech 77, but Peter 7 becomes Jesus' 77. Peter 7 just hinted at wholeness. But Jesus' 77 declares that humanity will no longer be dominated by unrestrained violence, but that unrestrained forgiveness will be the hallmark of this community. And then Jesus follows this brief instruction with a parable that I find rather puzzling. Jesus says, in this way, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who decides to settle his accounts. One slave at the top of the list owes this king 10,000 talents of gold. And here's where that hyperbolic absurdity comes back again. In the world in which this story was written, there was no monetary denomination larger than a talent. A talent was like, I guess, what do we have, $10,000 bills or something like that? It is huge. And a talent is worth even more than that. A talent in that day was worth about 20 years' wages for a normal worker. A talent is a lot of money. And the number 10,000, it was the highest number that they could name in the language of the day. There was no number higher to be named. And so this slave owes the king 
The largest number of the largest denomination. It'd be like saying somebody owes a bazillion gazillion dollars today. It's an absurd amount of money. Neither the king nor the slave has any hope that this payment, that this sum could be repaid. And knowing this, the king decides to sell the slave into slavery, which is a little interesting in itself. But when this man begs for a chance to make repayment, to repay this massive debt, the king has mercy on the man. And the man doesn't just receive a payment plan. The man walks out debt-free. He does not owe a thing anymore. He walks out with his life. He walks out with his freedom. He walks out with the grace of the king. And as that slave walked out, having just received this grace, he ran into another slave that owes him almost nothing in comparison. And this forgiven slave is not so quick to forgive. He takes this second slave by the throat and he demands repayment. And the second slave uses the exact same language that the first one used with the king. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you. But this forgiven slave refuses and he has this second slave thrown in jail. And when news of this forgiven slave's actions are reported back to the king, the king calls him back into his presence and names the issue. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy in you on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. And Jesus finishes the parable with a rather scary phrase, so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister in your heart. So let's reset this for just a moment. Jesus first instructs his disciples to forgive to such an excessive amount that counting sins is absolutely absurd. And as far as Lamech took his violence, so we take our forgiveness. Jesus says and illustrates this instruction with this parable where a king at first seems to show this kind of grace that Jesus is calling for. And in the parable, the one that receives this extraordinary forgiveness refuses to let that forgiveness flow forward. And the king, who at first seemed like a shining example, can't count forgiveness up to two. He throws the man in jail. If we take this parable as an allegory, if we assign the character of the king to be the character of God, then this parable takes us to some rather uncomfortable places. This would say that while we're commanded to forgive and 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 to forgive, and to forgive that God doesn't. The king in this parable doesn't sound like the God of the psalm that we read at the top of the service. This doesn't sound like the God that we celebrate weekly as we come here. This king is not merciful and gracious. This king is not slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This king is quick to accuse. This king does deal with us according to our sins. This king repays us according to our iniquities. 
All of this says that this king's grace is just contingent on us. If we make this king God, then the only reason that we have to offer love and forgiveness is to save ourselves. And that's not love. And that's not forgiveness. Do unto others as you'd have the king do unto you. That's not the golden rule that we've learned. Jesus certainly takes our forgiveness seriously. But he doesn't do so at the cost of making God petty and vindictive. Jesus is looking for us to forgive from the heart, it says. In his commentary on this passage, N.T. Wright says that forgiveness is like the air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, if you insist on not passing the breath of life on to your fellow neighbor, you won't be able to take any more breaths in yourself. You will suffocate. Each week in this service, at the beginning of the sermon, sometimes in other parts, we pray that prayer called the Shema. In that prayer, we are reminded that our love of God, our love of neighbor, our love even of ourselves is to be done with all of our hearts and with all of our souls and all of our strength. That second word, the Hebrew word that we translate as soul is the word nefesh. Say nefesh. Nefesh. Our Western minds sometimes imagine that our souls are distinct from our body, that we're separate from our body. But this word nefesh helps us to understand that that's not quite true. This word nefesh actually comes from the Hebrew word that means neck. It means throat. Your nefesh is that which allows you to breathe in the breath of life. Your nefesh is where God breathes into you, where Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit. The forgiven slave takes his fellow servant by his throat. He takes him by the nefesh and he cuts off the ability of his neighbor to draw breath. And in doing so, this slave cuts off his own ability to breathe. Not only can he not breathe out the life that he has already been given, but he can't breathe in the grace that's offered. I'm reminded of a story in which one prisoner of war talks to another years later and says, have you forgiven them yet? Have you forgiven them for the years that you were in jail? And the second prisoner says, I will never do that. And the first says, then you're still in prison, aren't you? The first slave shows us that his own forgiveness hasn't yet been accepted. It hasn't been given the opportunity to transform. Forgiveness from our king, forgiveness from each other is a gift that we receive through giving. As my friend, the Reverend Chris Esta says, you got to give it away to keep it. This gift is already offered. Our God freely gives this gift God's grace has been given to us from the very beginning of our stories. And as Paul says, God will allow nothing to stand in the way of our relationship with God. That this God has given and still gives and will give everything that we need to be in relationship. And our acceptance of this gift 
is merely to give it away. We give it to those that sin against us. Again, as we said, we can set up the healthy boundaries. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we just forget that somebody has wronged us. We do have to name the issue. But our, abri- our ability to breathe in our very life, our nefesh is dependent on us breathing the same breath on others. This is the call that Jesus has for the community of Christ in this passage. We forgive as we have been forgiven. There are a lot of ways that our Bible talks about sin. Sin is an action that harms relationship. Paul uses sin kind of with a capital S to say that there is a cruel master named sin. In the psalm that we read today, sin is a disease and it's a stain. And in this parable, sin is an economic debt. Sin is that which keeps us out of relationship with God and with one another. Whatever way that you understand sin, my friends, in Christ, you have been delivered. You are free. You have no debt. You have no illness. You have no stain. You have no cruel master. And so whatever else somebody owes you, whatever else somebody has done to you, if you're keeping score, if you're refusing to forgive, you're cutting off not just their heir, but your own. You're still in prison. And we can have so much more than that. And so may we be a community of forgiveness. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for just a moment. And take a deep breath in. Feel the nefesh, feel the breath of life breathing into you. And then breathe that breath back out. Breathe that forgiveness back out. Maybe even picture a face that needs to be forgiven. But inhale your forgiveness and exhale your forgiveness so that we can all draw breath again. In the name of the true king who is slow to anger and the Christ that redeems us from our debts and the Holy Spirit that gives us life, amen.